One of the great challenges in our world, that is the world of our own day or frankly any time in human history, to communicate who God truly is in His character and in His perfections. It is a great challenge for us. Ask any pastor, any preacher, any seminary professor, any Bible college teacher to to represent God in our world rightly, biblically. There are challenges to doing such because people have such erroneous views of who God is and how He operates in our world. But Psalm 24 might be one of the places in our Bibles in a compact, short way, communicate one of the clearest presentations of the character of God that we may find in all of Holy Scripture. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. There's only 10 verses, but within those 10 verses, this passage is chock full of declarations about our God and ultimately our needed response to this God. Psalm 24 is a psalm of David and it says this, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. I want you to notice verses 1 and 2, and then also, jumping to verses 7 through 10, we have six pronouncements about the character of God. Six rock-solid declarations about the character of God. Look at verse 1. There you can see God's sovereignty. His sovereignty. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If you were to ask the question, where does the Bible say that God is sovereign? Right here. Right here. The earth is the Lord. It belongs to the Lord and the fullness thereof. And do you see the alternate translation? The earth is the Lord's and all that fills it. I heard R.C. Sproul once say, if there was only one 
maverick molecule running loose somewhere in the universe, God would not be totally sovereign. But there isn't a maverick molecule running loose. God is in sovereign control of the entire universe. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom, His sovereignty, rules over all. Now we're going to pray this psalm back to the Lord in a few minutes. And one of the things that you can pray directly back to the Lord is to thank Him, to praise Him, to worship Him for His sovereignty. Sovereignty is just the concept that God controls everything. It's His kingdom. It's His world. He created it. The earth is the Lord's and all that fills this earth. He sovereignly controls everything in His creation right down to the most finite element of the universe. He is in charge. That was one of the things that we told our children early on when we catechized them, that the Lord is king, that He is sovereign, that He's in control of everything. And that's not too hard for young people to understand. Uh, They have a, a response to their parents. They know who's in charge when those little kids realize that my mom and dad stand over me, lovingly so, but my mom and dad stand over me, they're in charge. It's not a great leap to understand that we as God's spiritual children realize that God stands over us. He is sovereign. Here's a second declaration, God's providence. Look at the latter part of verse 1. The world and those who dwell therein. That means God's providentially controlling even all the people in the world. He not only controls the world, He's not only the uh, the creator of the universe, He controls uh, all the plants of His kingdom, He controls all the animals of His kingdom, but He also is in sovereign control and providentially orchestrates what everybody does in this world. It says it, the earth is the Lord's, And this world that He's created and all who dwell in it belong to Him. Isn't that what Paul said in Ephesians 3 when he was praying that great prayer? And he said, I bow my knees to the Father in whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. There's not a single family on the face of the earth for which God hasn't providentially place them there and everything they do and every action that they're involved in is controlled by this providentially sovereign God. So He's sovereign and He's providential. Thirdly, He's creator and sustainer. Look at verse 2. For He, referring to the Lord, referring to Yahweh, He has founded this earth upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He's creator God. Verse 2, He founded it in the sense of His past action of the creation of the world. He founded it. And what's interesting too about uh, that latter statement in verse 2, and established it, it really should actually in the Hebrew tense of that verb be establishes it. Right now, He continues to establish or to maintain His world. That's why I say This declaration of who God is in this compact psalm, God is sovereign, 
He is providentially in control of all things. He's the creator of the world because He set the foundation or the boundaries of everything, even upon the seas. In other words, God's in control in His creation providence of ensuring that the waters only go as far as He wants them to go, and the rest is the dry land upon which you and I dwell. He he controls it all, and He present tense establishes this world upon the rivers. He's in the sustainer control idea of the universe. He's completely in charge and he sustains everything because he's creator, because he's sovereign. And you know who the psalmist is referring to? Well, remember, if you and I look at this text and you see that word Lord in verse 1, and it's capital L-O-R-D, and that's referring to Yahweh, Yahweh God, that's referring to the Father, and with complete equality, the psalmist is also referring to the Son, even if he didn't know it. Because in Colossians 1, it says that Jesus Christ is God's agent in creating the world. So whenever you put those little kids to bed at night and you tell them who the Creator is, you'd be absolutely right on target, theologically speaking, to tell them that Jesus created it all, right? He created it all. In fact, look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul had no trouble whatsoever declaring who is the Creator and Sustainer of all things. He had no problem whatsoever. Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 16 of Colossians chapter 1. For by him all things were created. Who's that? Christ, the image of the invisible God, according to verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, by Christ, by the Lord Jesus, all things were created created. What a statement to first century people. I mean, let that sink in. Jesus Christ, the man of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, who lived a righteous life on earth, who died a painful, violent death, but who was resurrected from the dead, is said by Paul to the first century Christians, particularly the Colossians here, for by Him, by Christ, by the Lord Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And then notice the sustaining part, verse 17. And He is before all things. He's the guiding force behind the creation of the world. And in Him, all things hold together. In Him, all things have their coherence. He is Creator, Jesus Christ. And He is Sustainer, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sustains it all. You want to see how the writer to the Hebrews states it in Hebrews chapter 1. This would be a great couple of verses. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 and Hebrews 1, 2 and 3 to make sure you teach your children 
about Jesus being the creator of the world. Hebrews chapter 1, in these last days, Hebrews 1, 2, He has spoken to us by His Son. God has spoken to or by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom, here's the agency, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Christ is Creator. And not just Creator, but notice this, Sustainer. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Drill that into your children and your grandchildren. Make sure that they understand that the very creator of the universe and the one who upholds the world by the word of His power, the sustaining presence of Yahweh God is in the person of Jesus Christ. That's that's the sovereign rulership of King Jesus. And He providentially upholds the world by the word of His power. He he is such a grand sovereign king that if he wanted to change something about our world, he would do it simply by speaking a word. In fact, even in Genesis 1, Yahweh God said, let there be light. And there was light. That's, That's through the agency of the word of the power of the spoken word of Jesus Christ. He's sovereign He's providentially upholding the world by the word of His power. He's creator and sustainer. And number four, He's glorious. Glorious. Look at verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The King who possesses glory. And notice how many times it's mentioned. Verse 8, who is this King of glory. Verse 9, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Verse 10, who is this King of glory? The latter part of verse 10, He is the King of glory. This is not a broken record. This is a song, but it's not a broken record. This is the God of glory. No wonder when we sing the Psalms and when we pray the Psalms back to the Lord, He wants us to pray and praise Him because He is glorious. He's he's almighty. He's glorious. Now think about Psalm 24. David doesn't tell us exactly what's going on. What's the situation? What's What's in the scene of this lifting up of all heads so that the gates may be lifted up or opened, ancient doors that the King of glory may come in. Well, you realize that that particular phraseology was probably a reference to the idea that Israel goes out in battle and the Lord goes before them and the Lord through them is victorious for Israel in that battle and they're now coming back to their women and their children and they are proclaiming the glory of the king who went before them in battle and now these victorious soldiers with God as their commander-in-chief are coming back into maybe even possibly Jerusalem and they're saying, open up the gates 
Uh, fling open the doors. Why? Because the King of glory has gone before us in victorious battle. You say, David had a few of those, right? Yes, he did. And maybe one of those was back in 2 Samuel. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel. This may be, we don't know, but this may be what's going on here. This may have been the actual declaration of King David himself writing in his mind about victory over the Philistines. Look in 2 Samuel chapters 5 and 6. This is, this is an amazing thing. You remember David was anointed as the king of Israel, but the Philistines will, will have none of it, and they want to defeat Israel, and they want to take the Ark of the Covenant, and they do, and yet there is a battle, and David and his army defeats the Philistines with this Lord of glory as the one who goes before. And according to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it, and he went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And what's the Lord's response? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up. You see, the Lord was providentially orchestrating these battles. One time you shall go up, you shall not go up here. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, get up, For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. You want to talk about divine military intelligence? Don't go up now. Do this. Here's the battle strategy. And if you do what I tell you to do, you'll be victorious in battle. And according to verse 25, And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba Geba to Gezer. According to chapter 6, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And he arose, and with all the people who were with him, from Baal Judah, to bring up from the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Remember the ark of the covenant? That was sort of what we might call the, the local presence of the Lord, right? And we know the Lord is is omnipresent. There's nowhere where the Lord is not. But the Lord voluntarily allowed Himself and the sense of His divine presence to be located in that Ark of the Covenant. That's how precious that Ark was to the people of God, right? 
And the Philistines had taken it and they had defeated the Philistines and they brought this ark of the Lord. And according to chapter 6, verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. She didn't like it, but the Lord loved it. Why? Because the Lord was being declared the king of glory. And I can just see that scene right now. I've been to Jerusalem. I mean, they flung open those doors and the Ark of the Covenant came through where it was supposed to be on God's high and holy hill. And that, that triumphal scene might be the very thing that's going on here in Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors. This triumphal king is marching through the local presence of the Lord. Where we can say, the Lord is with us. He, he fought for us in battle. That the king of glory may come in. The commander in chief is walking back into the city. Who is this king of glory? I'll tell you who it is, verse 8. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory might come in. You know what verse 8 declares, I think? There's another attribute, God's power. God's power. Don't ever doubt, my friends, the power of God. The power of God to do anything within His will and purpose and that will and purpose shall not be thwarted. It's powerful. Now you and I might say, well, when is He going to be powerful on my behalf? When is He going to raise me up from my sickness? When is He going to help me with this cancer? When is He going to help my family? When will He do these things? Well, remember, He's sovereign, and He's also providential. He will provide in His time and in His way. And he's also powerful. Notice what verse 8 says. Yahweh, strong and mighty. Mighty in battle. This is, this is God's glory being manifested as the Ark of the Covenant is coming through those gates and God is being shown to be powerful. The Philistines were, were knocked out. They were trashed. They were beaten. And look at the end of verse 10. Who is this king of glory? That little phrase, the Lord of hosts. The Lord whose host. The, the idea of the host is, in this context, a host of men who are fighting for him in the battle. He has this host. And even if men were to fail in the, the battle, God even has a backup plan with the angels. There's, there is nothing that will thwart this warrior God. Do you know that that's actually what the, New Testament, or what the Old Testament also calls God? That He's a warrior? He's a warrior. Read uh, the Song of Moses sometime. And in the first three verses, you'll find out in Exodus 15 that it says that the Lord is our warrior. He's our warrior. 
And do you know what it says in Revelation 19 about Jesus Christ? We should, we should turn there. We should turn there. Revelation chapter 19. This is, this is who our God is, my friends. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God being seen as glorious warrior. Revelation 19 verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness He judges and makes war. That's our warrior God. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems, and He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which He is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, there's the host, the host of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Now, these are His subjects, these are His saints, these are His, his army, the, the soldiers who do His bidding. They were following Him on white horses, and from His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel, angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Victorious in battle. Who is this King of kings and Lord of lords? It's Jesus. He's the King of glory. God is sovereign, providential, creator, sustainer. He's power. He's warrior. And there's a portion of Psalm 24 that I skipped over, right? Look back at verses 3 to 6. If, in fact, He is that kind of sovereign, providential, creating, sustaining, powerful, warrior God, then He also has expectations of us. We might say that when this King of glory walks right into the middle of Jerusalem, And he sits as this king of glory who reigns and rules sovereignly over his subjects who are his subjects. Who are the ones who have done battle with him and who have been sustained by him and who are victorious with him? Who is it? The question rhetorically in verse 3 is, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? If you know anything about Jerusalem, it's high. That's why they talk about going up to Jerusalem. And this hill, 
might actually be the Mount of Olives. And who shall stand in His holy place? Who are the subjects of His kingdom? Who are the armies of this Lord of hosts? Well, there are a couple of attributes. If God is being declared in Psalm 24, so are His subjects. Look at verse 4. Here's the answer to the question about who might ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in His holy place. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And he who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now, we're actually seeing defined for us who the kingdom subjects are. Who the uh, soldiers are in God's army. And now we're seeing it move from what we might say is all of the, the battle scene to the internal nature of the human heart. Here's spiritually, and as it works itself outwardly, here are the people whom God accepts. Verse 4, clean hands and a pure heart. That means that your, your actions, your actions, your, your very duty, what, what you do with your hands, all your dealings with others, your actions, your speech, you're not blamable. There's no corruption. You deal with people around you with integrity. And you have a pure heart, it says. That means that you desire in the inmost part of your life a clear conscience. A heart of love toward your God and your neighbor. That's the soldier. That's the soldier in God's army. Does that characterize you? This is the... This is the character that God expects in His soldiers. I love what Paul said in Acts 24, 16. I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. That's that's clean hands and a pure heart, right? And did you know that even though elders in their character are called upon in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 to be above reproach. That means that they can't be charged or blamable for some public sin for which they would then be disqualified. But did you realize that in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, it says this about all believers, do all things without grumbling or questioning that you, all believers, not just elders, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. You're shining as lights in the world. That's what it means to have clean hands and a pure heart. You're you're shining as lights in the world. Clean hands and a pure heart. And not only that, notice true worship before God and True ways before men. Look at the latter part of verse 4. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false. In other words, you're pure before God. And that idea of false is probably a reference to false gods, idols. You love God, this King of glory, and you have pure hands, you have clean hands and a pure heart, and you don't lift up your soul to serve false gods. 
And for us, it's not just those little figurines that might be uh, placed on somebody's mantle. It's whatever false god rules my life. Money, power, control, sex, notoriety, power, whatever it may be. He does not lift up his soul to serve, to worship what is false. There's true worship before God and does not swear deceitfully. That means you have true ways as you interact before men. Psalm 31.6 says, I hate those who pay regard or lift up their souls to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord because He's the King of glory. He's the one to whom we absolutely must give an account. Who can be on Yahweh's holy hill? Only the ones He lets on His holy hill and only the ones who have clean hands and a pure heart and who have true worship before God and before men in all their ways. And notice the blessing that they receive, verse 5. He, whoever this man is, he, if he's standing before God with clean hands and a pure heart, not serving false gods, not trying to swindle others, verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Blessing from the Lord, grace. Grace from the Lord, mercy from the Lord. And righteousness, right standing from the God of his salvation. And then he zeroes in on every Israelite in verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, literally Hebrew text, God, comma, Jacob. And what's Jacob known by another name? Israel. Israel. You see what David's doing? He's saying, look, if you have seen this glorious God go before you in battle, and if you're a self-respecting Israelite, and if you know that you would not have captured the Philistines and their idols and smashed their idols and recovered the Ark of the Covenant, if you do not see the God of glory as that kind of God that you ought to serve with clean hands and a pure heart, with true worship of Him and not false gods, not the Philistine gods, not anybody else, and if you have integrity with your dealings before men, always maintaining that pure and blameless conscience, then you're going to be on His holy hill. But if not, you have no, you have no business calling Him your King of glory. But if you do, you will receive blessing, grace from Yahweh, and righteousness from the God of your salvation. That's, that's, that's a ton to pray for and to praise God for. Let's do that. Bow your heads with me. Two times in this psalm, Lord, the little Hebrew word that we may not know precisely what it means, but it appears as though it was some kind of musical term, silah, that was maybe a kind of interlude, a little bit of a break in the song so that the singer, the, the 
the praiser was taking a little bit of time to think through what he had just sung. And two times in this psalm, we're told with this little word to pause and to take some time to ponder who this great God is. Sovereign. God of providence. Creator. Sustainer. Powerful. Warrior. And we pray those attributes right back to You, Lord. That's who You are to us. I don't want to be accused of bartering for some other supposed God, whether a God of my own making or some God that somebody else is purporting to be the true God. I want to worship Yahweh. I want to worship Jesus Christ, the one who is creator and sustainer and sovereign, providentially orchestrating the upholding of the world by the word of His power. This God who is the warrior of Revelation 19, who will smite the nations. And He's the one who calls the shots of who's going to ascend to His holy hill if we're ever going to be with Him triumphing in battle. It'll be because we have His righteousness. We'll affirm and praise His sovereignty as the one who providentially orchestrates all things and the one who delivered me from certain spiritual peril because I repented of my sin when I placed my confidence and trust in Jesus and Him alone for my salvation. Thank You, Father, for raising up the incarnate Son, bringing Him back from the dead, and seating Him at Your right hand, the seat of power, and whom we will see come again to judge the living and the dead. He is the King of glory. Father, we are so grateful, so blessed to be given Your righteousness. And we pray, each one of us who know You, we praise the King of glory. Say in your mind right now, back to the Lord, you are the King of glory. Pray to Him now.